You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at Fish and wildlife.org that's fish and wildlife.org ladies and gentlemen happy thursday welcome back to another episode of the average conservationist podcast and i'm your host mark Schewing. well we are in our first full week of the month of october and here on the podcast we have decided to dedicate the month of October to conservation. Now, you may be seeing, saying to yourself, isn't this entire podcast about conservation? It is. However, we have spent a, you know, really the past year plus talking to uh, businesses and individuals uh, who are 2% certified, who have made that commitment uh, to giving back to wildlife. Uh, but for this month, uh, we want to focus on the organization's um, that have made it their mission uh, to to give back to to certain species, um, to protect their habitats, uh, their herd, the numbers, really any and everything uh, that these organizations are doing to protect 
uh, specific species uh, is something that we wanted to focus on. So all month long, every week, you're going to go, you're going to get someone different from a different conservation organization. Uh, and we are going to be talking about all sorts of great stuff that, that these orgs are doing, um, you know, what their membership base is up to, uh, projects that they're working on, what they have in store for the future, uh, all that good stuff. So that being said, we are kicking things off with Lee McDonald from the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. And really fun episode. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I still don't know a ton. But prior to, to speaking with Lee, uh, you know, I had a lot of questions uh, as far as, you know, all the stuff that the Goat Alliance is doing. I mean, I've seen stuff on social media about surveys and things like that. But Lee and I really get to kind of take a deep dive into, you know, what all of that work means and what they're doing with all this data that they're collecting and how they're working with, uh, you know, biologists to really try to protect this species as a whole. Um, it's, I mean, they are fascinating animals. The, the habitat and the areas that they live in is, you know, it's not like a lot of other um, big game animals out there. So the stuff that we got to talk about and cover, uh, you know, you can tell that Lee is obviously very passionate about the mountain goat and, you know, the work that the, the organization as a whole is really doing and, you know, why they really decided to form the organization uh, seven years ago. So really fun, great conversation, very informative for those of you out there who may not know a ton about uh, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, uh, this is a great one for you. So, without any further ado, episode 72, kicking off Conservation Month, Lee McDonald from the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Uh, before that, though, I want to take a minute to tell you about our friends over at Wild Rivers Coffee. Speaking of people that love the outdoors and conservation, at Wild Rivers Coffee, they're roasting in small batches. That way, they can ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers Coffee is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe in preserving wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why with everything they sell, a portion of proceeds are being donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. So you're going to get uh, organizations like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Ducks Unlimited, as well as Trout Unlimited. So go to wildriverscoffeeco.com. Order your fresh roasted beans, some really sweet handmade mugs, uh, some really cool merchandise. Uh, and if you sign up and subscribe today, you're going to save 10% off, off your order. Or if you don't want to subscribe, if you just want to buy a t-shirt or you just want to buy a single bag of coffee to give it a shot, which I highly recommend you do, use the code, and this is all caps, FISH underscore WILDLIFE, and you're going to save 10% off your order as well. So whether you subscribe, you just buy one, either way, we got you covered, 10% off. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com, use the code FISH underscore wildlife and save 10%. All right, joining me on the podcast today from the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, I have Lee McDonald. Lee, how's it going, man? I'm good, Marcus. How are you? I'm doing well. I, uh, I appreciate you making some time. We're uh, kicking off Conservation Month here on the podcast, and the the Goat Alliance is the first up. Uh, so I'm excited to to kick things off and, and learn more about the organization. Yeah, same here. Always happy to talk. Yeah, great. So I guess as far as the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance goes, let's kind of go back to the beginning and talk about 
you know, why it was founded, how it was founded, all that good stuff. Because I know it's in terms of conservation organizations, it's uh, it's relatively kind of new on the scene. Yeah. So started as a conversation um, with a wildlife biologist back in 2014. Um, Peter Munich founded the organization and it was really kind of brought up as a you know, hey, there's a lot of cool species, you know, specific orgs that are doing a lot of good work, but there's really nothing out there for mountain goats specifically. Um, and they were kind of getting tossed around by the wayside. They were kind of the, you know, no pun intended, scapegoat of, you know, a lot of recreation impacts and disease impacts and things like that. So it was, we recognized that, you know, and at times if, if something tended to have to fall off the radar in terms of you know, funding or data collection or something, it was usually mountain goats. So uh, it was started really with an impetus of like, Hey, let's, what can we do with limited funds as a, you know, a budding organization, a bunch of volunteers who just want to help mountain goats. What can we do? And it started with our ground survey efforts and really ensuring that, you know, consistent year over year population data is is done in as many mountain ranges as we possibly can so that's kind of where it started and since then it's butted into everything from helping fund some relocations doing a lot of the disease research and some habitat research we have funded um some ultrasound work and fecal studies and now we're expanding more and more um, into looking at a lot of travel and migration habits um, what what does or are there some key markers and key key indicators there and really just trying to build a very big knowledge base around mountain goats so why do you think it was that you know you kind of mentioned it there in your explanation or, or you know kind of the reason for looking further into mountain goats. Why do you think it was, uh, or I guess, you know, your opinion or, or your experience that, that mountain goats were kind of an afterthought, right? Why was it that that was kind of the thing that was always kind of slipping through the cracks? I mean, when you have, you know, foundations for a lot of these other, you know, big game animals, you know, why, why mountain goats, uh, was it kind of an afterthought? Really? I wouldn't say it was so much as an afterthought. It was, in so many biologists that I've talked to and I've built relationships with over the years, it's, they get pulled a hundred different ways. They have private landowners that have interest. They have public land, public land users and recreational people that want to provide input. They have, you know, the other species specific organizations that have a concern about, you know, lower, lower populations in some areas than others and there's they're getting pulled a lot of different ways and at a certain time you only have so many dollars and so much time in order to do something so really since there was no one advocating for mountain goats it was kind of like oh you know these mountain goat stuff would be cool to do but i've got this elk project i've got this sheep project i've got this waterfowl project, et cetera, et cetera, down mm -hmm. the line. And all of these things that kind of needed to take priority. And before you know it, you haven't surveyed a population of mountain goats in five years. And it's kind of like, oh, we really should, you know, create a better way to ensure that this work continues to happen. Yeah. So the organization, was it actually founded then in 2014? Yep. So we did our first projects in, 
2014 uh, ground surveys across the northwest of uh, lower 48, so from Montana over to Idaho, and really just kind of talking with biologists and finding out areas like, hey, where do you normally fly? Any idea? What are your thoughts about letting a bunch of volunteers go out there and count goats for you? And be able to provide some feedback over a weekend or something like that. So, and from there, it's really just expanded into more and more areas, and really identifying sort of key areas that, you know, what's an ideal area for a ground survey versus an area that, you know, is more ideal for an aerial survey, things like that. And then, of course, again, just expanding into now we're helping to fund student research projects we're helping grow the next the generation of biologists by helping ensure that they have the, the funds and th funds and things that they need to travel to these different um mountain ungulate conventions you know where they're going to present their paper on mountain goats whatever they did so it's we've expanded quite a bit in terms of the scope of what can we do for mountain goats. Okay. So what exactly is your role there, Lee? Uh, I am the operations coordinator. So what exactly does that entail? <laughs> that entails a little bit of everything. Um, so I'll kind of answer that by talking about our other two people that we've got. Um, so Ross Bruno uh, is our development coordinator and we're actually um, – and he's helped us with really bringing on a lot of sponsors and big partners to help provide funding and really help us grow. Um, and then we've got Carla Ryan, and she is our admin. She helps to push all the buttons that need to be pushed in terms of someone fills out a funding request and it gets approved by the Science and Conservation Committee she helps to ensure that all of that um, funding process, you know, happens. You know, she's pushing the buttons. Uh, I kind of handle everything else. Um, so I do everything from shipping merch and things like that. Um, if you reach out to us on our inbox or, or you email our store, it's typically me responding. Um, I work with all of our members our membership database, our communications, our newsletters, blog posts, things like that, um, as well as I work on our conservation side. So I go out and help us help find projects for us. I work with our regional representatives, and when we're forming new relationships with the biologists and creating sort of our calendar and our schedule for what are the projects we're going to do this year, I find those projects and I help ensure that they're facilitated from start to finish so so how was it that you found yourself working with the goat alliance i mean <clears throat> i know you and i got a chance to speak yesterday because uh, we had to reschedule because of a power outage on my hand <laughs> um so how was it i know you're you're originally from louisiana so how did you find yourself in montana and then you know more specifically um working with the goat alliance sure so moved to montana a handful of years ago um back up a little bit from there. So my degrees in conservation biology and resource biology. Uh, granted, I had a focus on studying sharks, but um, the data, the data methodologies still are 
still apply in my book. Um, so I graduated from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And then life throws curveballs at you. And you know, sometimes you have to do some things that you didn't think you'd be doing. And I found myself working in corporate America and putting my analytic background that I that I got in college from looking at population dynamics and things and running tests. Uh, I found myself in corporate America doing doing analytic reporting for operations and finance. Um, kind of started working my way up the chain in corporate America. Lived in Atlanta for quite a while and uh, realized I was like, I don't really want to do this anymore. I don't. <laughs> uh, I want to get back to the conservation side. Um, I, at the time, I was volunteering for the Ducks Unlimited and Trout Unlimited groups in that area. Um, I helped kind of kickstart the southeast region of backcountry hunters and anglers and i sat on that board for a while and i was doing tons and tons of other volunteer work for conservation groups and various riverkeeper groups in that area and just realized i definitely wanted to get back over here i was taking yearly trips out here to to hunt and to camp and fish and everything like that so i just thought you know why not just bite the bullet and go and so that's what i did um i worked for a tech company here in town um, as a project manager but a couple of years ago uh actually I want to say, like, when was it? Late May of 2020, uh, the Goat Alliance had put out an opportunity for, they were looking for some help. And so I applied and here I am today. Yeah. No, that's, uh, I, I'm always interested to, to kind of hear people's story uh, in terms of how they kind of ended up, you know, where they are. And for, in your case particularly, you know, from studying conservation and wildlife, you know, with a focus on sharks and then now, you know, where you're at with the, you know, the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Yeah, that's that's certainly a, a big jump or a, kind of a 180 from, you know, big water uh, right. you know, to to the mountains and, and things like that. It's it's uh, it's very cool. So with the mountain goats, you know, how many states can people actually find mountain goats in? And I guess what, which states would those be? Um, including our Canadian provinces and stuff, I believe we're looking at 11 so far. Okay. So pretty much ballpark it from Alaska south all the way down to Colorado. Okay. Yep. So none in New Mexico, none in Arizona. So what would you say, I guess, is the like actual like mission of the Goat Alliance? Yeah, so our mission in a nutshell, uh, the actual verbatim version can be found on our website. But, but our mission in a nutshell is to increase and enhance the management, range, and population of the Rocky Mountain Goat where it's native and suitable non-native habitats. Um, and, and we want to make sure that we're doing that, though, without negatively impacting native ungulates. Um, and we definitely want to ensure that while we're doing that, we're educating for the public of ongoing projects and partitioning for the expansion of sustainable hunting across the continent. So it's a multifaceted um, mission statement, but each of those kind of line items is important, you know. We definitely want to advocate for the expansion of both native and suitable non-native. We definitely want to 
not doing anything at the peril of any other native ungulates. And then we have mission of not only educating our hunting followers and members about the conservation needs around mountain goats, but also the whole recreation side. So that's why it says public in general, right? Because there's, there's recreational impacts to all these things as well. So it's a very all encompassing, um, yeah, I know we've had a few guests on uh, in the past that have participated in some of your goat surveys. Um, I believe Greg Vandenberg, um, who was one of our first handful of guests that we had on, is in South Dakota there and has participated in a few. Uh, Jared Frazier, obviously the executive director of 2% for Conservation, um, which I believe he also serves on the board uh, yep. for the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Uh, has participated in some of those as well. So from like a a survey standpoint, how many of those are you guys um, trying to put together, uh, you know, in a given year? That varies. Um, So typically it's going to range anywhere from five on the low end to maybe seven or more on the upper end. Um, Part of that really kind of depends in, a narrow window of time of kind of when we can do it because we do need the engagement of the biologist and their team in order to do these surveys. So when we talk with them, it's, and when I say engagement, they don't necessarily have to actually go participate with us. Although we absolutely would love it. And most of them do 90% of the time that does happen, but we look at kind of a window, ideally sort of, late spring throughout early fall but at the same time there's areas where it might make sense to do it in the winter it might make sense to do it while there's still some snowpack and maybe the mountain goats are a little bit lower make access a little bit easier because every mountain range is absolutely different and then we also have to take into consideration all the logistics um is this a range that we can do with 30 volunteers or is this any because it advances because it's pretty wide open and we can see a long ways and groups can be four miles apart or is this an area that we're going to need a hundred plus volunteers because it's nothing but slot canyons yeah. and we're going to have to have three groups up at each section one at the one at the wall one in the middle one at the beginning so all of that kind of goes into the planning and the structuring and we work with the biologist as well to to determine, you know, we have a methodology that we like to follow, but they may want some additional data points. Um, and, you know, since we're going into an area that they may not get a chance to survey at all, you know, for example, when we were in Colorado this year, uh, they also they also asked us to grab that same data that we were getting on mountain goats for sheep. So we were able to help ensure that some sheep data is collected there as well and then we're slowly expanding that as well um into looking at like recreational impact and we're counting you know how many recreators we see both motorized non-motorized um in certain areas so a lot of a lot of different data points and all of that kind of goes into how many we do a year but rough numbers tend to range anywhere from five on the low side five on the low side seven to nine on kind of the high side yeah. You know, I see a lot of stuff on like, <clears throat> let's say social media, Instagram, whatever, 
of a lot of like, especially during the summer months when a lot of people are in the mountains recreating, you know, maybe um, doing some through hikes, um, you know, maybe doing some, some, uh, you know, camping kind of in the backcountry, high mountain fishing, stuff like that. And they tend to encounter mountain goats. And it almost seems like as close as a lot of these people find themselves, you know, in, in terms of proximity to mountain goats it's almost it's really unlike any other animal wild animal that i've ever seen like they don't they don't seem to be scared i mean like you know like i mean you'll see pictures where people are you know perched up on a rock on a peak or something like that and they've got mountain goats you know 10 15 feet away from them right and i and i think you know with my experience in the outdoors and whether it's like an elk a mule deer a white-tailed deer like i mean you're not getting within you know a couple hundred yards of those things uh, without them winding you or just, you know, your mere presence, you know, spooking them and having them run off. So what is it about mountain goats that kind of allows, you know, what seems to be kind of more human interaction with them? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of different theories and stuff on there. I mean, ultimately we can't necessarily get inside their head and <laughs> ask them what they're thinking, but they do have a bit of a gregarious nature. Um, there's some thought around that because they're more closely related to antelope than true goats and taxonomically, they actually kind of fall right in the middle. Um, that there's some of that gregariousness that you have from antelope where they're a bit, bit curious. They're kind of not sure what you are. They're willing to investigate you a little bit. Some of that may carry over behaviorally. It's also a bit of a habitat sort of ideal. Like they're not really running into like, tons and tons of predators where they're at up on peaks, which is typically where most people are getting their selfies and stuff for you know, Instagram right. or something. They want to show that they climb some crazy peak. And of course that's going to tend to be where they are. Um, if you run into them more in the trees or kind of down low and stuff, they may be in an area that's potentially more predators and stuff. And they may want to back away a little bit more, but at the same time, there's, um, one of our biologist partners was showing me a video the other day. Uh, they had some they had some salt from the snow. Well, they had some salt that had been put down on the roads on their tire. They had drove up to a trailhead during the early spring to uh, do some work, and a young mountain goat had come down and was like licking their tires to get the salt off. And she tried to fuss at it and kind of shoo it away, and the goat just didn't really care. <laughs> But that's the other thing is that they, they really just haven't been peopled very much. You know, they're not particularly, people aren't necessarily trying to hug them, but people aren't really kind of like threatening them and you're making a lot of loud noise and trying to push them away either because, you know, which they should be doing. Um, as a matter of fact, one thing I'll, I'll point out, we, uh, you may have heard in the news, a couple of weeks ago by this point, maybe even three weeks ago, there was um, a young grizzly had thought to have been killed by a mountain goat um, in Canada. And they were, biologists biologist had done a necropsy on it and they thought that the puncture wounds and where it was found and the circumstances, it was kind of a young, um, slightly um, emaciated female that it had tried to you know maybe take advantage of a mountain goat and it was killed because uh, they do have incredibly sharp horns and that's kind of like 
okay, what's the take home from that? Well, the take home is that if a mountain goat can kill a grizzly, even if it is a slightly, you know, emaciated young grizzly, it can certainly kill you. Right. And so just like any other wild animal, we see them, like we hear stories every year of people getting flipped over by bison in Yellowstone because they got too close or this or that. And it's like, well, you know, mountain goats are perfectly capable of harming you as well. And considering you're in precarious areas on the edges of, you know, cliffs and tall peaks and areas with shale, it's probably not a good idea to be going doing that. But they also, you know, come down and they tend to investigate a bit more, right? So like if you set up camp and you happen to go outside at night and you know, go to the bathroom and stuff and you're camping in mountain goat area, it's a very good possibility that you'll have a mountain goat in camp with you, you know, licking up urine as a mineral. Yeah. So, um, just us being there and, and that kind of thing, it kind of invites them a little bit and, uh, in some ways. Yeah. You know, and I, I tend to think about it too. And if you think about, you know, some of the other big game species, you know, elk, mule deer, white tailed deer, it's almost like kind of ingrained in them or kind of passed along from generation to generation or they they learn uh, certain things from, you know, their mothers when they're growing up about things to be leery of, uh, you know, when to kind of sense danger, what's a dangerous thing and when, you know, to get the hell out of the area that they're in because of a potential threat. And if, you know, mountain goats are kind of, like you said, a bit more precarious and, and curious and, and, you know, more willing to investigate that that same you know curiousness i guess gets kind of passed along to generation and generation so there's you know it's never kind of fully ingrained like people people could be in trouble you know they're like oh you know maybe maybe they had an experience like you just said where they came into a camp somewhere and there's minerals and they kind of put two and two together like well we could you know this isn't a threat you know we can actually you know get some you know nourishment from these people that are here Absolutely. And habituation and like you know, movement impact is, is a real thing. We've got a lot of collars on some goats in some very high recreation areas. And kind of the surprising thing is that, you know, the goats might move a little ways away during some of the high traffic times and seasonal periods, but they're not going to not go where they want to go. So if that means they're going to cross a trail with you, they're not too worried about it. They know what activity looks like. They have a good idea in that area that people really aren't going to bother them. They might get a little closer. And there is a certain point where you're going to push too hard and you'll either get a threat response or push them out of an area, you know, scare them and spook them off. Um, so there is a limit to it, but absolutely there's – there's a habituation element to it as well. And if they're just used to it, then they're just used to it. Yeah. So with every kind of species and and big game animal, I guess there's, there always seems to be, um, you know, certain, I guess, threats kind of within the herd or within the species itself. Um, you know, CWD chronic, you know, or yeah, chronic waste, uh, EHD. I mean, there's a lot of different diseases and things out there that, that affect these populations. So what is the, I guess, the biggest threat that the mountain goat population faces? Oh man. Uh, it's potentially a pretty long list and I think we're still trying to figure out but some of those are certainly from a disease perspective, Movi is kind of the big one that they get. Um, 
And that's kind of the one that I think most people are sort of watching out for. Um, and if there's any sort of testing that needs to be done, that's kind of the first thing on the list. Like let's test, you know, for Movi. Um, other than that, really there's, you know, there's a lot of studies that are coming out right now. And there's a lot of things that are looking at habitat impact and, and some climate change, you know, uh, in areas where, or they used to have maybe high alpine grasses or mosses or lichens and you know something like that maybe some of those are being reduced how much of that is due to lower snow levels versus how much of that is due to in areas where it's got high recreation high recreation activity you got more people just stomping around right and kind of putting more wear and tear up there so there's a lot of things that they're really kind of looking at um and then i don't think there is every one single silver bullet i mean even from a predation perspective there's some areas where mountain lions are kind of the main predator um and there's other areas where golden eagles are the main predator so having that kind of one silver bullet for like what is the thing it's a combination of you know there's some disease there's some predation there's some habitat loss and there's is certainly some human impact yeah so kind of what you had explained, you know, early on with kind of this, uh, the all-encompassing mission uh, that the Goat Alliance has, I mean, how do you guys determine, you know, what you want to focus on maybe in a given year uh, in terms of trying to uh, maybe rectify a specific, um, whether it's predation, whether it's human recreation, you know, the impacts that, that the things that you just listed, you know, how do you guys go about you know, trying to correct or, or improve upon, um, you know, maybe some, some of the things that are causing, um, you know, the population to decline or, you know, goats moving out of certain areas. Sure. So first off is it starts with a question in terms of, you know, we want to look at this area because we think something's going on. What's happening to the goats or why are there fewer goats in this area or why are we seeing an impact and maybe it's anecdotal reports we're getting you know there might be an area with a certain number of tags but the success rate's gone down quite a bit or um we've done a number of surveys and we've seen we feel very confident that those surveys weren't impacted by weather or any other circumstances but we're potentially seeing some decline in numbers there or it's an anecdotal insight from from the public and from our membership and saying, Hey, like we need to look at this. We've also got our regional rep program, um, who they, they're very engaged with the local communities around mountain goats in their areas. And so a big question comes up and then we, we kind of talk through that question with our science and conservation committee, who is a group of, Cumulatively, they have over 100 years experience in mountain ungulate biology, um, both active and retired wildlife biologists, as well as in the university and an academic uh, landscape. We kind of toss around ideas like what might be interesting to look at. And then we also take a look at, we engage with our state and provincial biologists and say what are the things that are impacting your areas what's that pipe dream project of mountain goats that you want to do but you're too focused on this other species right now or these other projects and you just don't have time to tackle um so we kind of 
grab all of those questions, figure out how and where they apply to our mission statement. And then we say, okay, how can we help fund? And you know, maybe it's time, maybe it's dollars, maybe it's a combination of both, which is usually the case. How do we ensure that this goes forward and, and we can order and we can prioritize them? Sometimes they're very quick and simple. We do a ground survey over a weekend or it's a grad student that's just doing this one season of work and they're going to publish a paper on it. Sometimes it's going to be a, a four-year effort and it just kind of depends on what what the scope is. A lot of times we're, we're two of the main projects that we are funding right now are both continued research because the research pools that they've been looking at are either imperiled mountain goat areas that have been monitored for quite a long time and we want to ensure that like those good data good data records and that work continues uh an example of that is the call ridge area in alberta and then we're also looking at the bridger range in montana because genetically it's got some of the best goats in it but it's also one of the most heavily recreated areas in the state i mean the bridge range is literally in bozeman so as much recreation as it gets how does it have such good um how does it have such good genetics with mountain goats so there's some collaring work that goes there there's some camera trap work that goes there all that kind of stuff so i don't really know if i fully answered you for the question but you know how we decide on work um comes from a variety of factors one is people just saying hey this is the work i want to do and they submit that funding request to us and it gets processed we review it find out how it aligns with our mission statement and we'll make a recommendation and then also just those kind of pipe dream like man it would be really nice to to look at this be really nice to do this and we see how feasible that is in order to do it and does it align with our membership um views and it doesn't align with our mission statement yeah. So how many members, um, I mean, so you guys have been a, an organization for, for seven years now. How many, uh, what's your membership like, I guess, in terms uh, of numbers? Yeah, batting just under 1,100 right okay. now. Um, it ebbs and flows a little bit if, you know, as people renew. Um, but I think one of the things that we're sort of like most proud of is that over a third of our membership are life members. Yeah. No, that's so incredible. We, we've got an incredible amount of support from our life members and people that are willing to step up in a very, very big way in order to support us. So, yeah. And those are, I mean, that's people like that. I mean, that's kind of with, with my company, with the average conservationist. I mean, those are the kind of people that, that I, I think need to be celebrated, right? The people that, that make it, uh, you know, that become life members that, you know, see, you know, the value and the importance in, in these organizations, you know, regardless of the species. And it's, it's those members that, that make up, you know, the organizations. I mean, when you think of the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, you don't think of, you know, let's say 1100 different people, you just think of the name and, and the work that they're doing, but it's all those boots on the ground. It's all the surveys. It's all, you know, writing in, uh, you know, or whatever projects that maybe they want to get involved with, or they think that 
should be looked at or considered for, you know, kind of some, some further investigation. I mean, those are the people that are, are really kind of driving the bus uh, in terms of, you know, all this work and, and data that's being collected for the betterment of the species. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're, what's funny is we did a membership survey not too long ago, but really just to get an idea of, you know, hey, we're growing pretty quick and we want to make sure that you're still happy to support us. And if there's something that that you want us to focus on, you'll let us know. And, and there was, you know, um, like one of the really big things that sort of came out from that is people were willing to step up even more than that if we have an opportunity for it. So it was like, oh, you want something above life membership? And then, you know, sort of like, okay, well, what would you like? And they're like, we just want to support mountain goats. People just, they're willing to do the right thing and help support in any way they can. And I think that's the, that's the great thing about our organization is like, you know, we might not have the sheer volume of your know, numbers of members, but I would say that we have some of the most supporting members, not just from a dollars perspective, but just from an engagement perspective and people that want to see us go far and are willing to do whatever we need help with better make that happen. And that I think speaks such high volumes and i'm so grateful for all of their support yeah yeah when when you have a a membership base that puts that out there that you know all they want to do is help you know whatever they can do you know it's almost like you know like like a company that has you know a really good leader a really good you know boss whatever the case is i mean those employees they'll you know they'll run through walls for you you know if, if they believe in the mission they believe in the work that you're doing uh, it's incredible that a lot of times you don't even have to ask them to do it. They just volunteer because they know mm-hmm. it needs to be done and they know it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. So what are some of the, uh, you kind of touched on it, but what are some of the projects that you guys maybe have uh, coming down the pike in the next, you know, let's say like three to five years or kind of what is uh, some goals that, that that the organization has, you know, in the, for the future? Yeah, so projects that are currently going on uh there's a couple of them that are short term and a couple that are pretty long term um i mentioned the long term longer term ones earlier in call ridge and alberta and the bridges here some of the shorter term things that are still going to take another year and i say short term because often projects are at a minimum year year and a half right um because there's some seasonality and then there's a time for actual like data collection and analysis and you can write the paper and everything. So it's kind of encompassing that, that time frame window. We've got some work going on in Utah with the university of Utah and a grad student there looking at high Alpine vegetation and kind of looking at mountain goat impacts to as what's happening to mountain goats as high Alpine vegetation changes. Um, we also have a couple of other things in the pipeline that I can't quite talk about project-wise yet because nothing's been finalized and I don't want to let any cat out of the bag. Yeah, yet. no, I get it. Um, I understand. But uh, yeah, and then we help to ensure, so like an example of like a, like a short-term thing, um, when we did our survey in the Chiam and Chilliwack area of BC, uh, just, just outside of Vancouver. Uh, Jeff Augustino, our regional rep, was real key to 
a lot of the success of that project and getting it started because that was an area that had not been not only had it not been aerially aerially surveyed i mean that we're not, not there had not been an aerial survey in some time but we had never done a ground survey there or or not just us no one had done any kind of ground survey effort there so and there is no mountain goat hunting in that area but there are mountain goats so we kind of wanted to get an idea of what does the population look like in there what kind of impact do we have you know from recreational use and all those other kind of things and that was an area we worked really close with the biologist in that area and he let us know about halfway through the planning of the ground survey that he had put in for a request for an aerial survey but it got denied so we were able to step up and ensure that that aerial survey still happened so not only did we have our ground survey but about a week or so afterwards they flew it counted the same amount of mountain goats within a margin of error and so not only does that ensure that we that we're good on and we're confident in that number and now we can start further discussions going forward about what work needs to happen there but that also leads a lot of validation to the effectiveness of our ground surveys and how they can be implemented in other places you know terrain and, and volunteer bandwidth notwithstanding so bigger stuff down the pipe um project stuff aside we grew a significant amount in the last 14 months we had our first auction this spring which raised a whole ton of cash which is great and so thankful for everyone who went with this and helped you know bid on items all of our sponsors who donated stuff and that was our first one and so we certainly had hurdles and you know <laughs> some lessons learned from it but uh we had a great team to kind of help put push that through there will be another auction so that's something we are going to do again um it's really just kind of figuring out okay how do we continue to maintain the, the pace we have we've got we're doing well and we're ending up on more podcasts and more areas and people are hearing about us more and more and which is all a very very good thing so we need to ensure that we can continue to not only serve that growth effectively and those members but we also need to ensure that we can continue to as you know linearly or exponentially as possible serve mountain goats in that same you know a growth rate so we implemented our regional rep program i mentioned that earlier um not too long ago and that's something we really hope to expand over the next three to five years so rather than having sort of like a chapter model right where like like most orgs do we have we are we're running through this regional rep program and so you'll see over the next little bit on our newsletters and on social media and stuff we're going to start introducing them to everybody but we have some in montana we have alberta we have bc we have idaho we have colorado so we have alaska as well so we've got someone who is a member they're dedicated to our mission statement and to help ensure that our voice is heard there and that the people who are concerned about mountain goats in that area have someone they can reach out to as well so we're going to start introducing so please stay tuned to social medias and newsletters and stuff um as we introduce you to those folks um but that's a that's a real big thing for us and it's going to help us really continue to grow 
and ensure that the work still happens because now we'll have more eyes and more voices and things like that. Yeah. So now in this example that you were just kind of talking about where you were, where uh, the request to do a, a plane survey, uh, uh, an aerial survey had been denied and then you guys were able to kind of step in and, and help get that, that mm-hmm. done along with um, uh, the survey that, that you guys did from the ground. So, you know, the ground and the aerial. Yep. Where there's a population of mountain goats, but it's it's not uh, an area where you can hunt. Is that something that you know, as you guys collect this data and you you do all the analytical work, that maybe five years from now, if if it looks like that population is growing kind of to the detriment of the landscape, that they will open maybe that area up to mountain goat hunting. Is that something that you guys can kind of? have a hand in or, or offer an opinion or just kind of supply facts to whoever is going to make that decision. Absolutely. So in our mission statement, that's kind of the final line of it is that we do promote and we do advocate for the increased sustainable keyword there, um, hunting opportunities for mountain goats. And so not only do we say now I'll preface this, we never do anything we never, we're not doing this research because we're like, hey, let's do all this research so we make sure we get more tags in the area. Right, right. It's, it, it isn't done with that intent. The work needs to happen. Um, if we can expand, if it's an area that's suitable and, hey, the population is below objective and there's an opportunity to grow it and then over time we're able to see, you know, hey, we've surveyed this area for 5, 10, 15, however you know, long we get to go, years now, and we've seen not only the population in, increase, but it's now at carrying capacity. It's at objective. We feel comfortable with it. Um, we haven't seen another tag um, provided or given, we would absolutely advocate for that. But we'll also advocate for an area that has a population that's dwindling and should, would be beneficial to maybe have a tag reduced as well. Okay. So definitely on both sides, I guess, kind of of the fence, so to speak, where, you know, taking tags away, adding tags, whatever's going to be uh, like you just said, for the betterment of, you know, maybe that particular herd uh, in that particular yep. area. Yep. Sustainable hunting is the keyword there. Yeah. So how is it, you know, when you're doing these ground surveys, I mean, how, you know, how confident do you guys feel after a weekend of, let's say, you know, you have, you know, let's just a round number. Let's say you have uh, 50 volunteers to, to survey, to do a ground survey in an area. I mean, how confident do you guys feel at the end of that weekend um, with the data that you've collected in terms of, you know, what it, you know, how does that truly reflect, reflect, excuse me, um, you know, the actual population that's in that area? Do you guys, are you guys usually pretty close to, you know, maybe comparing that to, to some aerial surveys or is it some instances where it's only ground surveys that are able to be done in that area? Sure. So we do all of that work with the biologists in partnership and that's why the partnership and the relationships with biologists are so crucial so crucial because otherwise we're just a bunch of mountain goat enthusiasts handing them <laughs> a bunch of data and they're going to what do you want me to do with this so we never do anything 
in a silo on our own. Um, it's always done in partnership with them. And so, so for example, we'll survey an area, we'll take all of those data sheets, and we have our methodology that takes a variety of things to encounter when you come do one of our ground surveys. You're, you're going to be counting adult goats and kids. Uh, we typically don't worry about a Billy Nanny count because while we do a lot of our Billy Nanny quizzes on Instagram and things like that, oftentimes where we're counting these goats, you're looking through spotting scopes and it's pretty far off and in a real world hunting hunting, hunting situation, you'd want to get a lot closer anyways, to be sure. Um, and then if you're, we can start sort of throwing off data and it's kind of irrelevant. We just kind of want to know adult goats and kids. And then we're going to not only mark how many do I see, but I'm also going to look and see what time of day did I see them? What was their direction of movement? Um, how many were there in a group and what was that group makeup, right? Was it, you know, two nannies and two kids and they were moving across the peak from me? I'm sitting at 9,000 feet. They're roughly about the same elevation and they're moving east. Um, if there's another group that's down the ridge from me that has a view of the easterly side of that peak and two hours later they see a group of four goats of two nannies and two kids around whatever elevation we can often assume that okay that's a double count and that's right. the same group of goats so our methodology is tailored to ensure as much accuracy as possible but we'll also look at the historic trends with the biologist really squared away and say you know do we think that this was an inaccurate count and there's a margin of error right there's it's there's an expectation that weather is going to be the same um it's not going to be you know or it's going to be the same temperature it's going to be just as dry or just as wet or just as many people recreating or just as few uh whatever it may be. And obviously we know that that's not always the case. That's not, that's not always going to be true. So we look at trends over time from past efforts and kind of compare it to now and say, how accurate do we feel that this is? If it's okay. drastically off and we're able to identify like, you know, it was unseasonably warm or unseasonably dry. For example, when we did the Bridgers this year, that was, we changed methodology a little bit. Normally we do that over an entire weekend we wanted to try doing something a little bit different and say, let's just do it in a five hour window. Um, because that's when historically from most of our surveys, just on that one Saturday afternoon, early evening, that's when the majority of the sightings and the counting happened. So we said, okay, well, rather than requiring people to go for an entire weekend and require them to you know, stay up high, let's go ahead and scale it back and let's try just this window. Well, not only did that potentially kind of bite us in the butt a little bit, but it also did just about every little spring creek in that area was dry. Um, it was unseasonably hot. Um, I counted in my area just in that five hour window over 70 hikers. Mm. So all of these things sort of increase when we ended up looking at the data we've realized we probably only actually counted about a third of the goats that were there okay. so that's an area that we're kind of like okay we don't we know for sure that two-thirds of the goats just 
didn't just you know disappear or die off they were probably hiding down in the tree somewhere somewhere well away from um recreation crowds um, areas where they could get shade and water and just areas where we could not see them and in some areas there's a lot of instances in that particular area as well that they are nocturnal in some instances so uh that's an area that we're just going to say okay we don't need to make any drastic you know changes or anything like that but we are going to go back and probably resurvey that area and maybe go back to the weekend long methodology and take all those things into account yeah so for the average person that you know knows of mountain goats but that's maybe all that they know right they know they know what a mountain goat is they kind of you know know you know roughly the type of areas that they live in you know kind of high country rugged areas so what is uh, what is something I guess that you know a lot of people wouldn't know uh, about a mountain goat that you can kind of share with that's that's just kind of I guess interesting bits of information. Oh man, uh, quite a <laughs> where bit. do you start, uh, eh? <laughs> yeah, where do you start? They're such a unique animal, and that's like one of the reasons that they're one of my favorites. But um, if you sort of look at kind of just their their physical build right they're very front heavy they're all chest and that's designed you know and to say design but that's the that that anatomy shape you know rather than being very uniform like a deer or you know very evenly kind of split and symmetrical in some instances um from a from a front to a rear they're very they're very asymmetrical. They're very chest heavy. That allows them to climb up quite a bit. Their hooves, um, they have pads on the bottom and they're actually kind of soft. So it helps to kind of, you know, it almost acts like a slightly deflated tire if you're going to go off-roading. Right. And it helps to kind of grip and, and things like that. Um, their scent glands um, are right behind their horns. And during the rut, things like that, billies will get looks almost like a big hockey puck right behind their horn um so many cool little just physiological traits and stuff that 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 are out there yeah no i mean that's like uh like the glands behind their their ears or their horns excuse me i mean that's something that yeah i didn't know i mean i think i asked that question more from a a a personal uh, curiosity oh, sure. than, than maybe, uh, you know, just wanting, you know, the listeners to know, because, you know, like, like a lot of things, I mean, uh, you know, people that, what I find is people who, who tend to, you know, hunt uh, a specific species, whether it's, you know, mule deer, whitetail, elk, whatever it is, you know, they, they, they have a lot of knowledge about the species in general. And a lot of that is, um, you know, gained over time with hunting the animal with, you know, kind of, um, watching them or, or, you know, in their natural habitat, you know, if they harvest an animal, um, you know, other um, conservation orgs that, you know, kind of put an emphasis on the anatomy and kind of physical makeup of these animals. Um, and again, with Mountain Goat, you know, with the Goat Alliance and being, you know, relatively new uh, in terms of, you know, tenure as an organization, uh, you know, a lot of that information, unless you're you know, a diehard, you know, mountain goat hunter, that's, it's probably a lot of things that people just don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, everything from, there are certain similarities that they do have to other large ungulates and that, you know, during, 
during rut times and pre-rut and stuff, you will see some uh, dynamics of the herd change, right? Like you'll see like some bachelor groups early on, just like you might with yeah. bucks or something. And then as the season goes on, that, that dynamics and stuff kind of changes and they're kind of doing their own thing. You see built like very large, very mature billies kind of always on their own, doing their own thing. Um, whereas you'll see like very, very young billies and stuff often hanging around a yearlings and things like that during certain periods of the year. So there are certainly right. some similarities as well, but um, other little quirks and things, um, you know, uh, I think one of the big things that not a lot of people know. And one of the things that we goes into why it's so important to harvest a billy, especially when you have an either sex tag is that nannies really aren't going to give birth until they're about four. Okay. So they're not like a white-tailed deer that's just going to pop them out, you know, once a year. Yeah, every spring. Yep, and and they're really only going to have you know, you know, one, or or a or up to two. There are there are certain you know cases and uh, examples, and even some images that we have on our Instagram page and stuff where there's you know a nanny that's got triplets and stuff, but that's not common. So they're having fewer young, and it's taking them a lot longer to do that. So harvesting a nanny, um, where 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 not applicable, while it is legal, um, in most areas, ninety ninety nine percent of the tags out there are, are going to be either sex. Although there are some nanny only tags and stuff out there, um, where it's appropriate because it's based on sort of whether the population dynamics and is it you know very nanny heavy, yeah, you know. Um, so, Versus, you know, something that's a bit more uh, um, a proper sex ratio and things like that. Um, so what is a, I guess, so I, I always find myself kind of going back to whitetail just because that's what I, from a, a big game perspective, that's what I, I certainly spend more time doing. And if you can find, uh, you know, it, it, it varies from state to state, right? But if, like, let's say in Michigan here, if, if you can, you know, harvest a, a four and a half year old buck, I mean, that's a that's a pretty darn mature buck, right? And, you know, if they've gotten to that age, especially uh, in Michigan where there's a, a very high number of hunters, um, you know, that's a, a really good buck, whether it's, you know, whether it has a huge rack or not. I mean, if you get it aged and you have a four and a half year old deer, I mean, that's, that's impressive. Um, you know, what is kind of the, the life expectancy or what is a, a mature Billy, uh, from an age standpoint look like? Well, that's a good question. Um, one thing that I was actually talking with a couple of biologists not too long ago with was that we we're kind of looking at what kind of data historically has been gathered around mountain goats. Um, and one of the things is that really there hasn't been a whole bunch of tooth aging and stuff on them. Uh, everyone's pretty much relied on, on, on annuli on the horns and stuff just like you look you would with sheep and there's there can be some variation in annuli growth and a growth ring appearance where it comes to um, precipitation levels and things like that something it's it's theorized that there's the wetter an area is the more more separate more separation you may have between annuli thus leading to a longer horn given the same age of a goat of another area um right. so they have some mountain goats that measured only and i say only eight inches because that's a 
very stellar goat um, here in Montana that to, they tooth aged at almost 16, like, oh, wow. like 15 and a half years old. So there's a lot of variables that go into it. Um, and so, you know, not every eight or nine inch Billy is going to be that old. Right. But um, certainly, you know, trying to see how i want to <laughs> phrase it <laughs> no, you're uh, all right. uh, you know, like when you look at the there's a lot of you know, so just like whitetail like you were talking about there's so much other than the rack that goes into how old do you think that deer is right you're looking at you know is there any sway in the back is there, there there's so many body characteristics right Billies and mountain goats in general have that same thing. Um, you might see a billy that looks like he's a six to eight inch billy because his ears are, say, on average four inches. The horns are about twice as long as that. If you stretch that horn out, it's about the length of his face uh, or about the length of you know, from his nose to his eye. Um, so you're like a kind of ballpark in it that seems to be about right. However, he doesn't really have a prominent hump on his back. He doesn't really have that big prominent kind of hump on his nose, that kind of Roman nose that they talk about. So while he, he might have, you know, big horns and looks to be a very good goat, he might not be that like truly caliber, like very, very mature old, like mountain Billy that everybody kind of iconically wants because he just doesn't have the body structure for it. So, yeah. And I think, like with that, it's like what you touched on. It could be genetics that give him the good growth in the horns. It could be, yep. like you said, his vegetation, you know, the, the food or the minerals that he's able to consume in, in the specific area that he's living. Because, I mean, if, if, you, if you look at a whitetail, I mean, you can look at, you know, a two and a half year old deer, which, uh, you know, let's say a two and a half year old eight point, or you could see, you know, a two and a half year old little fork, right? But they're both two and a half year, two and a half year old deer, um, and they're just, you know, different ranges, different food source, different genetics. And it's, yeah, it, it, it's just one small, I guess, uh, factor uh, when trying to, you know, kind of determine the, the age class of, of the animal. Yep, absolutely. So real quick here, Lee, before I, I get you out of here, I know you've got a, another another call and, and you've got your uh, Goat Alliance uh, monthly meeting tonight as well. Where can people find the Goat Alliance? How can they get involved, um, you know, or, you know, learn more, uh, you know, about the Goat Alliance? Yeah. So a handful of different ways on Instagram, uh, at Goat Alliance. That's our, come engage with us there. Um, you'll learn about, you know, some of the topics and stuff that we, we discuss and, what's kind of on our radar from a conservation perspective, as well as get to do some cool Billy nanny quizzes that you'd be surprised at how many people still get wrong. (laughs) Um, Or, or how many people instantly go to looking at horns when there's like other very obvious, like nail in the coffin things that are like in that image. Um, Go to alliance.org is our website. Um, Try to update that with blog posts as often as we can. Um, And, to keep everyone up to date there 
that's also the same place that you'll go to sign up and be a member. Um, we'd love to have you as a member. If you're not there real quick, I'll do a quick plug. We have a handful of different membership levels, kind of one to one to suit everybody. Um, I think we have our one year membership for $35. We have a three year membership for a hundred dollars. We have our lifetime membership for seven fifty, Uh, and we also have a lifetime member installment plan what that is is if you want to be a life member but you can't necessarily pay it off in one lump sum 50 bucks a month um reoccurring charge to whatever you know card you want to put on file and it'll automatically bill you once you hit that 750 limit payment stop and you're now a life member um and we also have a couple of funds that they can donate to we have our straight to conservation fund which goes you know directly to to um research efforts and projects and then we have our education fund which helps go to our our educational efforts and our public outreach um which can be everything from more uh more content as it relates to hunting as as well as um putting up signs at trailheads um in partnership with other agencies that say you know don't go taking selfies with mountain goats because they're dangerous and here's <laughs> here's how you should act around a mountain goat you know um so there's so a lot of pieces there uh, the educational piece is also where we'll have our um our student award program which helps grow the next generation of mountain ungulate mountain goat biologists um and ensure that they can whether it's a plane ticket a hotel stay whatever they need to go present their paper to their peers and get their research seen. Um, so we help with all of that. Um, you can reach out to me directly, Lee, L-E-E, at gotoalliance.org. Um, I also manage our other um, general inbox info at gotoalliance.org. So either way, whichever one you, you want to email, you'll probably be chatting with me. Um, yeah, lots of different ways to, um, to reach out and get engaged. Yeah, no, that's great, especially um kind of one if you look at you know a, a life membership of, of some of these other organizations you know 750 for a life a life membership i mean that's that's a great value uh, and a great price and especially with the installments cuz like you said not everyone has 750 bucks um you know but i tend to think that people kind of spend 50 bucks willy-nilly on things all the time whether it's you know, Starbucks over the course of a month, you know, fast food, whatever the case is. I mean, that 50 bucks uh, can be put to some good use um, doing that. So, no, that's great. And then also kind of explaining uh, the two different funds and, and where that money is actually being allocated towards. Uh, I feel like that's uh, having that transparency. Uh, and, you know, so members or potential members know actually where that money is going to, uh, I think goes a long way um, with people because, um, you know, obviously there's, there's overhead uh, and things like that with, with any organization, you know, so if you donate to the conservation fund, um, you know, you know where that's going to go. So that's a, that's a big thing. Lee, I really enjoyed this, man. I, I, this was very uh, informative for me. I don't know a ton about goats. So to be able to kind of pick your, pick your brain and, and learn, uh, you know, not only about the mission of the Goat Alliance, um, but just kind of some other facts and, and things like that along the way has been uh, really enjoyable. And, you know, I think, you know, not only yourself, but, you know, all of the members of the Goat Alliance and the team that you guys have there uh, for continuing to do the work that you're doing and making sure that a priority is put on the betterment of the species. Well, I appreciate the time and opportunity, Marcus. Thank you so much. 
yeah, well, hopefully we can get you back. <clears throat> excuse me, get you back on again in the future, and uh, can talk about some of the successes that you guys have had. Always happy to. Uh, stay tuned this spring, um, late winter, early spring. We're going to hope to launch our 2022 ground survey schedule. And so, if we have one in your neck of the woods, or if you're going to be headed out, you know, if you're on the east and you're going to be headed out west for um, a family vacation in the mountains or something like that, try and time it with one of our surveys and come out and spend a weekend looking for mountain goats. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Lee, we'll uh, take care of yourself and thank you again for joining me today. Sounds good. Thanks, Marcus. All right, thank you. All right. Well, thank you to Lee and the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance for kicking off Conservation Month here on the podcast. I would also like to thank the uh, partners of the podcast, Wild Rivers Coffee, Go Hunt, and Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. Uh, please be sure to go out and support the companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media where they're going to be posting only positive conservation-driven content. So you'll certainly enjoy those uh, posts in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, stay safe out there and conservation starts with you.